Hello, I'm Helen Avery and you're listening to Green is the New Finance, a new podcast from the Green Finance Institute. I'll be sitting down with financial industry leaders, economists, policymakers and environmentalists with one specific question. How can we collectively mobilise capital towards creating a greener, more resilient and inclusive global economy? And every other episode, my colleague Ryan Jude will be joining me and together we'll be talking green finance news and chatting with those working on green finance solutions on the ground. So welcome to episode one, the first of our Fireside Chat episodes. And to kick us off and to give you a sense of what the Green Finance Institute is all about, we thought who better to have as a guest than the Green Finance Institute's very own CEO, Priyan Mary Thomas. I'm not entirely sure how I could wake up every morning and think, ah, today I'm going to use all my expertise, my energy and all my knowledge to uh, help move us towards a six degree world. A bit of background on the Green Finance Institute before Rian joins us. If, like me, you're new to the Institute, it was set up in 2019 in response to a policy recommendation made to the UK government by the Green Finance Task Force chaired by Sir Roger Gifford. And it is tasked specifically with creating financial solutions to help accelerate the transition to a low carbon and green future. In this week's episode, Hrian and I will be discussing how collaboration and a sectoral approach can help drive private capital towards investing in net zero solutions. I'll also be asking her about her own journey into green finance and what's keeping her inspired. So thanks for tuning in. Hope you enjoy the show. So welcome, Rian. Um, It's lovely to have you join us. Thanks for taking time out of your holiday in Wales. How's that going? It's fantastic. Thank you, Helen. And thanks for the effort with the translation of Rian. Nice (laughs) pronunciation there. It's great to be home. Um, And yeah, I'm looking out over the Prasani Mountains at the moment. It couldn't with its beautiful sunny day. Lovely. A much deserved break, I imagine, because this year has been pretty full on. It's been a really busy year and probably not what you're expecting for the first year. No, I'm not entirely sure what I was expecting. I was just very excited at the platform that was being created for the Green Finance Institute. Um, And then obviously it has been a complete whirlwind as the acceleration and momentum behind green finance. We think back to Davos at the beginning of the year where it seemed that, you know, everyone was talking about sustainability and green and it really was the sort of decade of delivery upon us. And then obviously COVID. Uh, So I don't think anybody was expecting this roller coaster this year. And it's been a really busy year, as you say. The Institute's launched what the Coalition for Energy Efficiency of Buildings, CEEB. You led the finance workstream for the Global Resource Initiative. Um, You supported the world's first green finance education charter. Um, I know when I joined the Institute a month or so ago, I was blown away by the breadth of work being done. But was there anything that really stands out for you over this this first year? I think... When Sir Roger and I launched the Green Finance Institute last July, we decided that we would go for the financing green as opposed to greening finance, which at the time sounded a bit like semantics, but greening finance as set out in the government's green finance strategy is very much around looking at how we bring the entire finance industry on this journey of integrating climate science into the way it does business, very much focusing on risk, 
reporting, disclosure, and really looking at the financial stability aspects that sort of climate poses. Um, and then financing green is really about, you know, creating coalitions of the willing, speaking to those who, who already kind of get this and who are interested in just making sure that their money is being put to work in the real economy and driving those real economy outcomes. So it's really bringing experts together to go, you know, what are the barriers to getting capital where it needs to get to when it comes to things like energy efficiency of buildings or as we look ahead, uh, making sure that our transportation is is green as well. Um, so I think what has been quite interesting over this last year is when we made that decision, it possibly wasn't the most obvious strategy. Now, I think the conversation really has focused a lot. And I think COVID has done this. So finance as an enabler of real economy outcomes and, you know, how do we build on all that great work of focusing on risks and disclosure and reporting to really get capital moving and get over those barriers? So it seems very much of the moment now. Absolutely. And and we'll come a little later to the exact strategy of the Institute and this focus on financing green. Um, on green finance more generally, you, you mentioned earlier that obviously COVID-19 hits and suddenly there is this pause um, and I remember very clearly back in March, there was this question of whether the momentum of the green finance movement would continue in light of COVID. Um, and touch wood, it, it seems like it has. But but what's your sense? I agree with you. To date, the momentum is still there. And, um, you know, there was a obviously on one of our big flagship programs, which is, you know, you already mentioned Coalition of Energy Efficient Buildings. We rung around our coalition members at the beginning of March uh, to see whether their level of commitment was still there. And um, one of the chief execs of one of the big building societies said something that really stuck with me, which was, um, you know, by all means, your team has all access to my strategy team. But for the next few months, can you maybe lay off the products and operations teams? Um, and I think that's that sort of has captured the mood for the last few months. Um, as we look ahead, it does concern me a little as we brace ourselves for the sort of more difficult economic conditions to really translate into defaults and, and challenges for the financial sector, um, whether green starts taking a back seat. And I do worry about that, but certainly it hasn't to date. And, you know, there are stats about a trillion dollars being hit for the first time of inflows into ESG aligned funds and lots of data showing that the ESG aligned funds have outperformed market benchmarks. That might well be because they're obviously short on oil and gas stocks, but um, let's not get into that now. Mm, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? You know, we, we've now seen that, as you say, like financing for sustainability is simply the smart thing to do for everyone. And there does seem that, particularly around the discussions of building back better, people aren't taking their foot off the accelerator. But on this, and, you know, thinking about the evolution of green finance and how much excitement there is around it, I wondered if we can talk about your own personal evolution into green finance, because, you know, there you are. Chief Commercial Officer at Barclay Card. Um, and one might not think that's an obvious position from which to transition into green finance. 
yet you moved from there to become the global head of green banking for Barclays. You worked on the TCFD and now, of course, you're running the Green Finance Institute. So I wondered if you can share with us how that shift in career trajectory came about for you. Sure. Um, So you're right. It possibly isn't the most obvious pivot. Um, But then I have been an avid environmentalist my whole life. Uh, My late father taught me about the greenhouse effect in my teens. um, And I actually set up a paper recycling project in my school, which won an award. Um, And more seriously, spent some time as a student uh, when I was studying physics. Uh, My dream was at some point to become an engineer for a renewable energy engineer. And so spent some time at Siemens uh, working on fuel cell stacks, amongst other things. Um, But it was always my view at some point to be able to use my skills that I was learning in finance and try and apply them to the environment. And when the Paris Agreement was signed, I'd been in banking for 15 years. It became evident to me at that point that if all the countries were going to keep to their national determined contributions that they were signing up to, that would really mean a profound change in industrial strategy and in the economies that the financial markets serve. And that there would be a huge first mover advantage to whichever bank or financial organization really could partner with their clients and customers in helping them through that transition, which to me all seemed very inevitable. And so I'd really thought there was an opportunity to use the platform that I had at Barclays um, to start thinking about how that organization could really use its platform And like many people, I think once you've started focusing on this particular agenda and you realize that there is a contribution that you can make using your skills, it's very difficult to think about doing anything else. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? You know, you mentioned the Paris Agreement as being this kind of turning point, perhaps. And it really does feel like that period around 2015 was this pivotal moment where you have the Paris Agreement, the 17 Sustainable Development Goals for 2030 are launched, um, the Green Bond Principles are formed in 2014, and the Green Bond Market really starts to sort of begin to hit its stride in 2015, 2016. And, and since then, the pace of change has been so fast and really inspiring, as you say. Yeah, i never forget it was this early 2016 that I went to a uh, conference that was being organized by The Economist and it was on the topic of sustainable finance and it was just a complete epiphany. I remember seeing Steve Waygood from Aviva uh, speaking uh, as he does so passionately about this topic and, and I just thought this is what I've got to do. I've got to get involved in this. I've got to figure out a way of um, you know making sure that I'm part of this movement. It feels like such a different industry to work in today. I, I remember as a journalist covering the great financial crisis in 2008 and feeling so disheartened about working even on the periphery of the financial sector. And I know that mood was shared by by those working deeply in the sector. You know, and, and now here we are just over a decade later uh, and for many different reasons, but but one being because of the people working in the finance industry seeking greater alignment of finance with society and planet's needs. We're now approaching 
know, finally, this model of capitalism that is stakeholder capitalism. So you know, any thoughts on that shift? I mentioned earlier that obviously at Davos earlier this year, it was the 50th anniversary. And, you know, Klaus Schwab is somebody that has always focused on this stakeholder capitalism idea. And it just really appeared to be gaining such momentum. Um, you've had you know, so many leading chief executives of so many industries, so many financial institutions really starting to put social and environmental purpose at the forefront of their priorities. And I'm really optimistic about uh, the, the whole outlook for finance to really play a fantastically important role in getting where we need to on the road to net zero. On this road to net zero point, um, as you know, these podcasts were asking guests, how can we mobilise capital towards greener, more resilient and inclusive global economy? And as you touched on earlier, the Green Finance Institute highlighted early on that a sectoral approach was going to be critical in answering this question. Um, And we've seen that echoed across the finance industry, whether it's sector coalitions, you know, work on steel, for example, or or sector-based principles like the Poseidon principles for shipping. As an early adopter of this sectoral approach, can you share with us why that's so useful? I just think quite often when we talk about climate, we talk in these huge big numbers as though by saying we need 90 trillion by 2030 to meet the Paris goals or that we need 65 billion to retrofit the UK housing market, that in itself presents a compelling business case. But it clearly doesn't. You need the granularity and you need to look at the risk return. You need to look at the supply demand characteristics, which are different for every sector and even within sectors. You need to be even more granular if you genuinely want to make the money move. Money moves deal by deal, transaction by transaction. And the advantage of looking at it this way is this is how most banks and investors are organized as well. They have sector-specific teams that become specialists in certain areas. Um, And I felt that this would, you know, this would marry well with the sort of experts that we would need to bring into our coalitions. How do you therefore marry this sector approach, which is quite broad and scalable, with this recognition that the solutions in some cases may be local uh, and obviously smaller? You know, we, we hear some projects are just too small for banks to get involved um, and yet, at the same time, we know if we want to reach net zero, it's change at a local level that we're going to need as well. Um, and that's obviously going to require financing and support. When we talk about local, I think we're recognising our experience on the ground of speaking to the very people who are going to be retrofitting homes or who are going to be putting charging infrastructure in for electric vehicles. It's the local authorities quite often, that are, um, you know, they're charged with doing this, no pun intended. Um, And so it's trying to make, it's trying to figure out how do we get the right finance, the right finance expertise into those very practitioners' hands so that they can actually affect the changes that we need to see. And you're right, that does often cause tension between sort of the large institutional flows of capital that want to put great big hundreds of millions to work towards 
um, projects. So, you know, that makes an awful lot more sense. You don't need to do your due diligence on multiples of £10,000 investments. And so there is a trick here of figuring out how do we demonstrate that you can make good returns from some of these investments? And then how do we aggregate them or how do we scale them? I'm a firm believer that the best way of convincing people to invest in something, convincing them that it'll make money is to demonstrate it's already making money. Um, And so that's really underpins the way we're thinking about it is to look at, you know, how do we engage with the with the real practitioners, the real actors who are making these things happen on the ground and then figure out how we how we scale up some of those innovations such that it'll become even more attractive to some of the larger financial players. And this is really like the heart of the strategy, isn't it? For the Green Finance Institute, the the coalition type model, um, this bringing together different private sector, public sector, and and this whole theme of collaboration seems to be one that's really firmly taken hold in the global sustainability agenda, particularly this year. What's your own experience of why coalition collaboration is how we can best tackle global challenges? Look, we're not the first to do these coalitions. I think the thing that we're trying to do that might be a little bit different is also try and own a lot of the solutions. So bring the experts together to actually own and co-design some of the very pilot projects that are needed to demonstrate how capital can overcome some of those challenges. Um, And all of that is captured in sort of recent publications from our Coalition on Energy Efficient Buildings, which is very much our sort of flagship and prototype on all of this. Um, So I think the importance of coalitions, and you're right, Helen, we're seeing more of them. And that's because we all need to learn new ways of doing things. And so by bringing together lots of people who've got, you know, very different skills, very different experiences, and who are open and want to share their expertise, I think we've got a real chance of actually creating some new solutions that will actually accelerate where we need to get to. And so energy efficient buildings is the first. And I guess, you know, if you compare maybe energy efficient buildings to electric vehicles or nature-based solutions doesn't sound quite as sexy does it and yet it's so important especially in the UK if we want to hit net zero well we, I, <laughs> I contend it's quite sexy but <laughs> I really need to get out more um energy efficiency of buildings was a good place to start because the technologies are already known so you can really isolate the the financial challenge right why is finance failing to you know, create the sort of green mortgage market or green retrofit loan market? Or why why do we not have the equivalent of the property assessed clean energy programs that they have in the States, for example, or now very successfully in Australia? And the list goes on. Um, and so it was a great place to start. And then that, that, that coalition is now moving on to looking at zero carbon heating. So again, under that umbrella, we'll be starting that task force. And then over time, we'll be looking at SMEs and commercial buildings and also Um, looking beyond the UK and seeing which other jurisdictions we can apply that methodology to. Um, So, yes, we're looking at um, uh, transportation and absolutely delighted that Quadrature Capital Foundation um, are generously supporting us, replicating our work in buildings, but doing it in transport now. So that's that's work that we're hopefully kicking off um, in the fourth quarter. 
Um, it takes a while to pull these coalitions together and make sure you've got the right actors, you've got the right leaders, and that you're really not replicating work that's already been done out there. And we're actually doing something that's additional. Uh, so we're busy doing our due diligence and making sure that when we do do this and we launch it, it's going to be as impactful as possible. I wanted to mention we also did work on the, um, you mentioned it earlier, Helen, the Global Resource Initiative. Now, this was a really good government-led program around looking at supply chains and deforestation. Um, and sadly, that report came out right at the beginning of lockdown. So all our plans to have a sort of great big fanfare, um, they didn't come about, um, unfortunately. Um, but we're very much hoping that the government will be commenting on those recommendations in the autumn, or certainly before the year end. Um, because there were a number of recommendations in there, not all finance. Some of them came from industry. A lot of them came from civil society and the NGOs. It's a really rich report with some really good recommendations in there, working closely with government to hopefully make that happen. Yeah, I feel like since the last financial crisis, and certainly since 2015, there's this recognition that governments cannot afford to meet the challenges we're facing. So we've turned to the private sector for help but then in the last year, and certainly you know, in the last six months or even more recently, the private sector has actually turned that question back to governments, it feels, to say, you know, we can do so much, but we now need you to step towards us too. So, you know, I don't know if you saw last last month in August, the GISD, um, Global Investors for Sustainable Development Alliance, um, the, there were, you know, 30-odd CEOs of large financial institutions who wrote uh, to governments saying just this, you know, look, we're doing our part, but we also need your help. I think that's right. It's public sector as a very much as an enabler, creating investable markets and enabling the private sector to really play its part. I've recently come out um, very much in support of setting up a new national investment bank in the UK with a view to acting as a risk mitigation vehicle. So not crowding out the private capital, not at all. Instead, actually looking at how do we pull through some of the technologies that we're going to need, which are perhaps a bit early stage, or how do we use a, a national investment bank to help de-risk some of these longer-term investment opportunities or um, some of the large infrastructure opportunities that are out there, which are tricky for the private sector due to a risk return and capital requirements and a number of other reasons. Um, and so, again, to your point, that need to work together, I think that's a really exciting place for us to sit at the Green Finance Institute, which is right at the nexus of those types of conversations. Um, and I think a national investment bank is the obvious next step in creating these investable markets. It certainly does seem of the moment um, there, you know, there are many countries looking at this, as you well know, some of some of which have had a green bank type institution for some time, like you know, Australia and Japan and, and then others sort of newer to this, like New Zealand and Rwanda. I'm I'm here in New York. Um, and there are calls here from the Democrats, at least, for a national climate investment bank. And obviously we have an example here in the UK of a very successful green investment bank and um, what is it now 40 percent of global offshore wind capacity now sits around uh, British coastline you can see a few of them from where I'm sitting here in Wales and yes there were a number of uh, very important 
policy decisions that were made in order to really build that industry. But one of them was to create an investment vehicle that could meet those investment gaps. You can see how these types of institutions can really help de-risk a situation. And then if we look at the offshore wind industry now, it is now funded by institutional investors and has created some like 27,000 jobs um, in the Northeast. So there are there is a real business case in my mind for how these things, when executed well, can really accelerate and provide a, a real opportunity for private investment. Well, it'll be interesting to see if 2020, 2021 is, is the period of history where we look back and say that was the era where all the national green banks started up and the public sector helped crowd in even more private sector funding. We can, we can hope. We can obviously hope. And, you know, green banks are quite, they can, they can be the solution. And obviously we're doing some work now with the Rocky Mountain Institute and the NRDC in the States, uh, building on the work that many others have done uh, to look at when setting up green banks you know, when is that the right solution and how would you go about designing one and what sort of expertise is needed in order to do it. But sometimes it's other types of vehicles. One of the pieces of work that I've been working on is um, looking at carbon taxation, carbon charging. So I'm very pleased to be one of the commissioners on the uh, zero carbon campaign. Um, That's another very powerful lever. So sadly, there isn't a green bullet that's going to magically solve all the issues um, that we have here and help us with this profound change that we need to make in our economies. Um, but these are all great opportunities and initiatives that we can explore. Love it. No green bullet indeed, which is why we need all hands on deck. And, and on that note, we are about out of time. But before you leave us to the beautiful mountains and hills of Wales, We have been batting around some sort of signature questions that we can ask all of our guests um, in these fireside chat podcasts uh, so we can leave listeners with some food for thought. So, Rianne, you get to be our guinea pig today. (laughs) It's uh, it's three questions that, um, for now at least, I am imaginatively referring to as the three things. So, uh, question one. What is the one thing you think we're not talking about enough in the green finance industry? It's got to be about, you know, harnessing technology in smart ways and finding, you know, a a way of investing in, in making the future better for everybody. And I genuinely think that's what green is all about. It's not about, uh, you know, knitting our own porridge and sort of all going back to (laughs) going back to living in caves and, you know, that obviously sits at the heart of what we're trying to do at the Green Finance Institute. So it's something that, you know, I'm, I'm trying to walk the walk and talk the talk. And on walking the walk and talking the talk, that's a perfect segue into question two. Um, what's one thing you're doing individually, other than through your work, to support a more sustainable planet? Personally, I, I gave up meat almost 20 years ago. So that's one thing I've done. I've never owned a car, um, but actually I'm about to buy one, uh, which is a little bit terrifying, but uh, my partner and I are about to buy a Tesla. So I'm actually learning firsthand about the different finance packages for buying an electric vehicle and sticking an electric charging point on your home. 
And obviously this year, I'm really pleased to have cut down on my flying. And I genuinely hope that, that it got to a point where most of the flights I, would take, I was taking were to do with work. Um, and I genuinely hope this new way of working, you're sitting in New York, I'm sitting on Ernest Morn. We are able to do our jobs without having to travel the planet as much as we were. So that's one thing I'm hoping to continue post-lockdown to support the planet. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, the latest data I saw was that global scheduled flights in August were down almost 50% year over year. Um, amazing. But but I did want to check check on something. Are you saying you're getting a Tesla, but you can't drive? I can drive. I just haven't, <laughs> I haven't driven for a very long time. So I, no, I do think I'm going to have to have some driving lessons. Well, that's a relief for Wales, I suppose. <laughs> and finally, to leave us on a high note, um, what's one thing you've read, seen or heard that has given you a sense of optimism? Well, I am just reading... Green Swans by John Elkington. Uh, but prior to that, I just finished reading Christiana Figueres and Tom Karnak's book all about the, the kind of future that we can choose. And I just, I thought it was, both these books are giving me a lot of optimism that we've got incredibly smart people out there who are really looking at this from, you know, they're really looking at the potential for change and to drive change in a positive way and create better society. Great book recommendations. Thank you, Rianne. Um, and actually, the wonderful John Elkington is going to be a guest on one of our upcoming Fireside Chat podcasts. So uh, we'll be diving into Green Swans with him then. Tune in for that one. Um, and thank you so much, Rianne, for being our first guest, uh, for breaking the seal um, we hope you have a really wonderful time in Wales and, and look forward to your return. Thank you very much, Helen. Diolch Well, that's it from Green is the New Finance this week. I'll be back in two weeks' time with teammate Ryan Jude and we'll be catching up on Green Finance news and talking to Louise Wilson from Abundance Investment about community municipal investments. They're a new structure that's taking off around the UK. You may have seen them and they give retail investors the opportunity to invest alongside local authorities in local green projects like solar and wind. So a really great way of allowing us to put our money to work for planet and also our community. So you won't want to miss it. And to make sure you don't, you can subscribe to our podcast via Spotify, iTunes and Google Play. And you can find all those links on our website, greenfinanceinstitute.co.uk. Until then, stay safe, keep it green and thanks for joining us. Green is the new finance is brought to you by the Green Finance Institute with audio production by Fairly Media. 